Yeah. So in fact, that brings up a key question I have for you about this expertise issue. So ultimately the members, they, they bring bills, right? And you need expertise to, to formulate a bill, right? And decide what bills you want to submit um, and throw in the hopper. And then the other is on the vote. They have yeah. to vote on things and they need expertise to vote on things. These seem to be the two fundamental member responsibilities. And so you need expertise in both cases. Now, where do you get that expertise? You can get it from a, you can learn it yourself. You can go to your lobbyist friends or your associations. You can go to OTA, a new version of an OTA. You can go to a committee. You can yeah. have an expert on your staff. You can talk to Harvard. You know, what, what ways do you think this expertise should be organized to enable better decision-making at those two levels? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it's a multifaceted one. Uh, as we talked about, you know, OTA served a certain role in Congress, but OTA was also devised in the mid and late 60s, uh, you know, for a Congress that existed in that period, which was much more revolved around committees as a center of power. Today, the balance of power has shifted, you know, very significantly towards leadership. So you have these sort of three poles, the rank and file leadership and committees, and arguably maybe it was two concentrated committees for a while, but that was a very central and relatively functional part of policymaking for a very long time. Um, now, you know, a lot of these hearings are kind of more uh, about kind of kabuki theater and all of the important decisions are made by leadership ahead of time. And, you know, none of these really there's not really any serious deliberation or or uh, back and forth at many of these um which lowers the stakes and incentivizes this kind of posturing and you know the sort of matt gates idea if you're not on fox News, you're doing it wrong and and you know the dysfunction that you get from that set of incentives and so um on the the ta part um, you know, it's sort of this long form, longer term expertise issues that maybe aren't immediately pressing and have to be answered right now, but things that you can see are going to be a major national policy issue. So this might be something now, like how do we maintain U.S. leadership in semiconductors or next generation wireless technology or quantum computing? And that's not a solve it tomorrow problem, uh, but it's something you're it's. You know, I think there is a someone in the OTA literature described it as is solving termites in the basement problems, not wolf at the door problems. And this is a sort of termites in the basement problem that you need really serious work to figure out all the details and get right. I think arguably the uh, debate about big tech regulation is one of those. And interestingly, we've seen the House Antitrust Committee act in the sort of right way around this. It's held dozens of hearings over more than a year, working in a relatively bipartisan fashion and produced this like nearly 500 page uh, report and then a smaller minority report around it with a lot of sort of bipartisan cooperation. And that's the kind of thing uh, we, we wanna see more of in Congress uh, and that kind of sort of hard work. And so that's the place where something like an OTA or a National Academies is valuable. It feeds input into the, you know, really big committee 
you know, substantial legacy committee projects. And the prerequisite for that, however, is having absorptive capacity in the committees to create a demand for that kind of analytic product, but also to absorb and use it. And so absent the right kind of staffing levels and bandwidth in, you know, in committees, you don't really see that having the same place. So in that case, um, it's committees where you feel like the expertise is best levered. So that's a big place for it too. Um, but the more rapid response issues, the wolf at the door issues, is where you have CRS playing an extremely valuable role. You know, there's a bill coming up later this week, and I don't know anything about this issue. I'm going to go look at the CRS website, or I'm going to call someone there who I work with as a staffer and get a great answer. And they provide, you know, thousands of reports and memos and do a lot of important work there. And that is also super valuable, particularly as, you know, staffers in individual offices or in committees are, are overworked and juggling a bunch of different issues. And so uh, that's also a very important kind of expertise function. Another is, of course, the, the expertise at an individual staff or, or committee level. And that's where uh, things like their tenure working on the committee is important. I, I believe Kevin, when he was at R Street, did some really good analytic work on this and they published some stuff talking about uh, you know for each committee how long people stay there and what their uh, uh, you know stuff is and I think that's another really uh, important area to think about as we're thinking about this sort of this institutional knowledge facet of of expertise and then I think you know of course there are personal offices of course there are other uh, entities there's also expertise from the federal government in the executive branch. So there's a range of you know, advisory entities and people working on science and technology, whether that's uh, you know, OSTP or NIST or uh, NTIA. The challenge is, because you know, there's this argument that why do we need to duplicate stuff for Congress that already exists? There are millions of experts, not millions, but there are, there are many thousands of experts in the executive branch. The problem is, is that you need to sort of, the way our, our, our system of government works, you, you ought to maintain some independent analytic capability and not just take the word of the executive branch experts since those are not always insulated from partisan forces. They're often not always considering the full range of stakeholder interests, whereas that's explicitly what Congress is designed to do. Um, and so, uh, for example, uh, there's been this sort of recurring debate every few years about whether we should have a uh, mandatory backdoor to encrypted and Apple has been resistant to this idea that they should have a backdoor because it would compromise, uh, create new cyber vulnerabilities and compromise all the sensitive information I have on here, you know, health data payments, what have you. Um, whereas law enforcement and the FBI have kind of come in and said we need to have this sort of backdoor mandate um, without being especially specific about the technical details of how this work and what it would entail. And so this is a situation where you might have experts from the Department of Justice rolling in and saying, 
this is a great idea. You should do this, right? And then you have Apple running in and saying, if we can't possibly do this, it'll be a disaster. And the truth is probably somewhere in between. It's at least an empirical question of what are the trade-offs of, of doing it this way or that way? And do we do it for uh, you know, just data that's stored on the device or also all data uh, in transit at the same time? And that's a tricky question. And there doesn't really exist the right kind of expertise in the legislative branch right now to analyze many of those kinds of questions and implications. And they're left taking the word of companies or of biased uh, or at least self-interested executive branch entities or various think tanks and lobbyists who themselves have conflicts of interest. I mean, the think tank ecosystem was, I think, what uh, you know, Speaker Gingrich had in mind to replace some of this capacity that they were defunding in Congress. Uh, and he was involved with a number of uh, beneficial arrangements to that effect in his time. Um, but think tanks, you know, uh, I can say as having worked for them for many years, often have uh, structural funding conflicts. And that's sometimes, you know, it's different depending on what the funding model is, but all of the funding models have certain kinds of structural challenges. Um, if you have individual donors that can bias you to being overly ideological and trying to manufacture in crisis all of the time, particularly if you're a, a partisan grassroots group, this can be uh, a factor, you know, talking about why we need to sort of cut a deal on, on climate with Biden is not going to motivate your supporters, but telling them it's, you know, literally socialism is going to rile them up. Um, uh, likewise, you know, many of the groups that work on, on tech are heavily corporate funded, and that creates a lot of sort of transactional incentives, which I think can mean that the type of work being done shouldn't necessarily be taken at, at face value uh, by people in Congress. And you know, another big model is foundations that I think is the best of the of those. Uh, but still, there can be a tendency towards sort of technocratic thinking and groupthink, and they can have their own uh, structural incentive biases as well. And even with all that, you know, think tanks tend to not produce work that has the same methodological approach as like an OTA. It tends to be more like a CRS. It's the opinion of a couple of analysts doing a literature review, which you know, may be really good or may not be really good, depending on the institution, depending on the individual scholar. Uh, some of the work is fantastic uh, that's out there in nonprofit world. Some of it's mediocre, some of it's outright misleading. It just depends. And if you're a 24-year-old congressional staffer, you may not know the difference in that problem, right? But none of this work is the sort of you know, robust model like a, a, an OTA. It's not getting a, you know, a, a, you know, a, a panel of expert peer reviewers and a multidisciplinary you know, committee of authors and going through the process, right? Um, so I think the type of input you get from outside um, 
coming in typically is insufficient and typically you need to create that internally. Um, there's a great chart that uh, it's got Peter Blair uh, put together comparing all of the different sort of entities that provide uh, science advice to Congress. And um, at the National Academies, and I think this is a really good way to sort of think about it. It has these different criteria for considering kind of uh, timeliness and responsiveness to Congress and, and objectivity and authoritativeness. And so anyway, um, you know, it's not quite as simple as, you know, just calling a scientist or calling an expert, right, as is sometimes dismissed, right? You actually, I think, just for institutional design reasons, for incentive reasons, you know, are better off having people who, uh, if you're in Congress, people who work for you, right, and are accountable to you, and you pay their paycheck. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Great. Well, I think I'm going to move on to our what we call our lightning round. We ask questions, the same questions of all our guests, and we'll eventually compare the answers with each other. Um, so we'll move on to those questions. The first one of those is, uh, what do you think congressional representation should mean? Yeah, I mean, sort of as I mentioned earlier, I think, you know, members are there to deliver some value to their constituents and represent their interests. And, you know, for that to work, members need to feel like they can, you know, meaningfully and in good faith contribute to the policymaking process and have buy-in to that process. And so I think a prerequisite for being uh, a functional at representation is, uh, uh, you know, making empowering members to, to do their work and to have meaningful opportunities to affect change. So if we go back to this concept of um, representation, you know, you, ha you have constituents, they have particular beliefs. Um, you know, do you, do you expect the rep representative to reflect those beliefs or to exercise his own judgment when it comes to policy? I mean, there's always some level of their, their own judgment involved in balancing different stakeholder groups uh, who have different interests. But, you know, I, you know ideally at the, at the end of the day, they're held accountable to their uh, constituency and, you know, maybe they'll be voted out if they do a bad job representing the interests of their district or state. Got it. So next one is, um, how would your ideal Congress allocate its time? Yeah, I mean, I think we need, as I mentioned, more of this kind of deep, substantial work in committees tackling big issues. There's too much posturing. There's too much uh, partisanship going on now. There's not as many hearings as they used as there used to be, and there doesn't seem to be uh, you know, the same seriousness that they're undertaking uh, the work. And that work isn't just legislating, it's also uh, conducting oversight of federal agencies, it's engaging with constituents, and all of these things I think you know, are super important. And you know, there's just a thing of, of just the sort of 
capacity and resources that are available, but also some of the culture in the institution. So more time in committees to, you know, looking into issues compared to what other activities, the, the, the more communications generated activity, uh, related activities. Yeah, I mean, that stuff's valuable as well. Um, you know, they spend too much time fundraising, but that's sort of baked in at this point. Um, I think they waste a lot of, you know, floor time too. And a lot of the time they, they do stuff that isn't as meaningful as, as other, you know, ways they could be spending their time. Um, but yeah, I guess what I would say is, is I'd like to see more, you know, deeper, longer term work in, in committees. Great. So maybe this is the same answer, but um, how should how should debate, deliberation, or dialogue occur or be structured in Congress? Yeah, I mean, I think there needs to be higher stakes. Uh, kind of as I said, you know, these decisions, the power to make these decisions, and the culture around making these decisions needs to be uh, decentralized away from leadership a bit, and more of it needs to be in rank and file. More of it needs to be in committees. Got it. Without, without those stakes, I don't think you have the, the kind of functional deliberation. And in terms of these discussions, you see them happening in committees versus on the floor, for instance. I mean, it's a, a bit of both, right? Um, and it's it's about balance. I think you can, you know, tip to tip things too far in any towards any one of those three poles, um, but. You know, in in the near term, I think addressing that that power balance is the way to make deliberation more functional. Great. Next question is: What fundamental institutional improvement should Congress make within fifty years? Yeah, I think the the key a key thing for me, and it's not the only thing, but a key thing is addressing the you know very dysfunctional politics around funding Congress. And so this is making it so, you know, uh, you know, a challenge each year is that legislative branch appropriations is a, a zero sum game was a sort of phrase that, that the House subcommittee chair, uh, Congressman Ryan used a lot today uh, that, you know, we'd like to fund all these things, but unfortunately, uh, giving you the resources to do your job, it's a zero sum game. You know, if you take Money is too many mouths to feed and too many, too much work to do, and that's a product of this politics. It's driven a lot by the Republican side and this sort of bias against spending money on government, which I think is, in some cases, a very healthy bias to have. There's certainly a lot of dysfunctional programs and waste and things the executive branch is doing that I wouldn't like to see them do, but. Uh, we also need a balance of powers between the three branches of the federal government, and Congress has substantially atrophied this capacity in no small part because of its just doesn't have enough, you know, the headcount. There are enough bodies doing the work, and we've cut them back substantially since the 90s, even as the uh, administrative state has grown uh, immensely. So we don't see these functions Congress should be doing, like oversight, like periodic uh, agency reauthorizations and so forth. And so this, I think, is driven substantially by this capacity 
problem, which originates with the uh, funding for the uh, legislative branch, and that has to do with the politics of spending money on itself. You don't get political points or you know campaign contributions for uh, paying your staff more or hiring more staff or even worse, giving yourself a raise. You know that's a horrifying prospect from a political uh, perspective. But you know the the member pays a functional cap on staff pay. And DC is a much more expensive city than it used to be, you know, not that long ago. And so, you know, if you're a staff or particularly on the house, you know, you don't want to live in a group house anymore. You have a lot of incentive to sell out to case you know, if you want to have a family and be an adult, right? So uh, I think that's a very, that creates a lot of dysfunction. And we need to get over that, that culture uh, and get some of the thinking, particularly on the right, realigned um, about this is the you know, very essential constitutional role for Congress to play. And it needs to be equipped to do that, particularly if you look at something like the Government Accountability Office, which is it made a uh, you know, pretty substantial, uh, I think it was a 12 or 13% increase request in this uh, year's budget request. And it's probably not going to get that. Uh, on, yet, uh, GAO reports the savings of several hundred dollars for every dollar of its budget, right? And so this is not something that's contributing to the national debt, right? It's doing the opposite of that. But the politics are still there because just the optics of spending money here doesn't look good, um, you know. And so we need to, I think, figure out how to build a coalition to to address that. And so this isn't something that I've been working on with uh, some allies on the left, like Daniel Schumann, and so we put together a letter this year. It's the third year we've done it, organizing groups on the left and right to advocate for increasing the legislative branch funding, which is it's on the 302B sub allocation, uh, which is the sort of slice of the pie that it gets of the uh, all the different appropriation subcommittees. And you know, part of this is the sort of bad optic of spending money on Congress, but part of it is also that the other subcommittees are more powerful and have you know, their own kind of political incentives tied to them. The, you know, legislative branch chair tends to be a stepping stone to, you know, other higher things. And so there's not a lot of incentive to go fight for Congress as an institution. This is something that Matt Glassman has written some great stuff about as well. Um, and so anyway, I've talked about this for a while, but I think that's one of the, forget your original framing of your question, but I think you know, giving Congress another billion dollars or two is a really important thing. And it's a tiny, tiny fraction of the overall uh, you know, amount of federal discretionary spending. Um, and yet I think it could have a big impact both in making our democracy more functional, but even in you know, reducing the sort of bloat in the federal government overall, since Congress would have a ability to conduct more muscular oversight and also just to make smarter decisions and more efficient decisions about how to do things. Right. Next question is what book or article most shaped your thinking with respect to congressional reform? 
Well, uh, I, I, I have uh, very much enjoyed the research and writing of some of the scholars in this space, not necessarily a book, but a lot of white papers from people like Daniel Schumann and Kevin Kosar in the science and tech space. There are, are two very good uh, books about uh, the Office of Technology Assessment and Technology Assessment more broadly. Its current incarnation, as I mentioned, is in uh, an office in GAO, which is doing really great work. Uh, called the STAA. And so the, the, the top one of those is a book called Congress's Own Think Tank by Peter Blair, which I think is uh, a fantastic book. And then there was another one, uh, which was by a number of different authors, but put together by some professors at Carnegie Mellon University. And it was a little bit more recent, coming in the early 2000s. And it has a, uh, you know, also a kind of a, a really good survey of of legislative science and technology uh, advice and what it means to for that to be effective and how to structure it. And so those are two books that I found very influential in my thinking. Great. Well, the last question is about your plans for the future. Where where do you see your your kind of research and scholarship going in, in the next couple of years and in the long term? Well, right now, uh, Daniel Schumann and I are wrapping up uh, a big data set we put together around funding and staffing uh, for Congress going back a number of decades. And we're turning this into a paper and then also making the data available for folks to use. And we hope to tell a more robust story uh, about particularly the sort of political environment for uh, funding Congress and how we might build a coalition to make it more functional. Great. Well, Zach, thanks so much for taking time. It's great to be here.